This is Mornings with Simi. Sure seems like all the news from the business world, from the social media world, is about Elon Musk, right? One of the world's richest people buying Twitter, following comments from him about how he believes that the social media platform is not, quote, adhering to free speech principles and how he believes that it, quote, fundamentally undermines democracy. So what is he going to do once he takes it over? He's essentially taking the company private. So what does all of this mean, especially for those who are concerned about, you know, the rampant type of hate speech and harassment that already exists on social media. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Amira Al-Gawabi, who's a communications director at the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. Amira, thank you for joining us. Well, good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. So when you hear about this, what, what's, what are your first thoughts? Well, I think I think we have to uh, first of all establish that you know free speech is absolutely fundamental to demo- democratic society. I don't think anyone is going to disagree with that. But the concerns that are being raised are really concerns that you know predate uh, Elon Musk taking over Twitter. Um, we do have a serious issue when it comes to these social media platforms in the way that speech um, is moderated and ensured to be safe for everyone. So what we know is that a lot of times when people are interacting on these spaces. Yes, they have the freedom to participate, but we also see a lot of abuse. We also see a lot of harm. We see a lot of content that is hateful, crosses criminal lines. Um, And sadly, and unfortunately for many users, uh, there isn't always recourse. It means there's no consequences to the abusive, uh, sometimes even criminal activities that are happening on these platforms. And so overall, what advocates and, you know, uh, experts, academics have been saying is that that there needs to be regulation on social media uh, companies writ large, and there's a bit of a vacuum at the moment. So when you when you take a company private like this, is there any recourse then when there is concern? Because in the past you would have you could have pressured shareholders, you could have right. They had they were a publicly traded companies, so obviously they had that those kinds of consequences and repercussions. So what happens now? You know, I think, as I said, the, the problems are going to still exist, whether it's public or whether it's private, even when it's public, even like a company like Facebook, for instance. And what we've come to learn uh, over the years with whistleblowers like Francis Hugan is that that corporate model uh, is deeply problematic because what you have is, for instance, when you have posts that are all about, you know, division, um, creating anger, even spreading misinformation, that the algorithms that many of us don't have access to even as expert or academics are actually prioritizing and pushing more of this content in front of people um, and sort of pulling people into almost rabbit holes of spaces where they're not actually accessing um, accurate um, information. Um, And so whether it's private or public, because there has been so little regulation and because we're waiting on governments here in Canada and we're seeing the moves across uh, the Western world to regulate these companies to ensure that first and foremost, there's a duty to act responsibly. This is something that um, you know we've seen being advised to right. uh, to these social media platforms that they have a duty. They have a duty to protect people from misinformation, from hate, from abuse online. Is there, uh, and then further, yeah, go I was, ahead. I was going to ask you. Sorry, is there a way then? Do you think, in your opinion, to shape regulation that would what change the algorithm that would say you you can't promote this type of content? You can't like an algorithm should not be promoting hate content. 
Well, you know what it is? It's all about having access to those algorithms in a sense of ensuring that what we've seen advised, uh, for instance, in various reports. So I sit on a Canadian Commission on Democratic Expression that has produced uh, one report last year on how uh, the government can regulate these social media platforms and is about to release another report very shortly. And what we've been saying is that we need a regulator. We need a regulator. We need academics and experts to have access to these algorithms, for instance. We need to be able to see what these companies are doing and how they're um, managing these public spaces, because whether it's a private company or, or not running this, these are these are comments. I mean, we are all interacting on these spaces. This is where democracy can live or die. And if we are not ensuring that information is accurate, that people are safe, you know, what we've seen is a majority of especially racialized Canadians face a lot of abuse. We've seen youth saying that they're finding um, abusive um, content online, dangerous content. In fact, Canada has one of the highest levels of, um, you know, misogy- uh, misogynistic white supremacist uh, content being, uh, you know, uh, sent not only around this country, but even around the world. So we've, on a per capita basis, we are one of the most active countries when it comes to spreading toxic views. And those views are happening online and they have real world consequences. We've seen, sadly, um, you know, people being killed. We had a family um, in London, Ontario, that was killed by an individual with white supremacist views. Um, and unfortunately, there's more evidence of that. There's been assaults against um, Asian Canadians throughout this pandemic. We've seen uh, people sharing misinformation about vaccines and public health. So the the danger to our democracy to not make sure that these spaces are being regulated properly, and that freedom of speech is absolutely guaranteed, but with limits, and right. that's what our constitution says. Amira, has any jurisdiction, though, has any country managed to do this yet? This seems to be a worldwide problem. It's not just, you know, North America that faces us. You're absolutely right, actually. I mean, this is definitely a worldwide phenomenon. And what we're seeing, you know, whether it's the US, UK, uh, Germany, other countries in Europe and France, um, People, you know, the governments are grappling with this. Um, the UK at this moment we're hearing is, is, is really coming up with some really interesting ways to address this, for instance, ensuring the protection of young people on these spaces uh, we, where we can see that, you know, abuse and um, real harms can come to them. So thinking about it as how do we ensure uh, youth safety is one way of coming at it from a different direction. So we're seeing different governments coming up with solutions and Canada is in a very good position in that sense is that we can sort of learn from what other jurisdictions have already tried. Um, the government recently uh, put together a task force, a, a sort of a panel of experts, uh, if you will, and they are going to be examining, you know, what are other jurisdictions looking at? What are experts saying is needed? Um, so the government is actually taking a pretty good approach to this in terms of taking time and examining how we how we get this right. And the vast majority of Canadians through poll after poll have said, you know what, you know, we need regulation. When we get on on these platforms, we know that we could be exposed to either misinformation, um, harmful speech, hateful speech um, that crosses lines, and that we don't always see the consequences that that are necessary. Right, Amira. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about that this morning. It's absolutely my pleasure, Simi. Thank you so much for having me. That's Amira Al-Gawabi, who's a communications director at the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, talking about the need, uh, they believe, for some kind of regulation on social media so that we don't see the kind of harassment and the, really the promotion of, of hate content, which 
in so many cases, as she pointed out, the algorithm automatically does. And that's the problem. That's why it's always being put in front of you. And then you kind of fall down that rabbit hole. Now, is that something that you would support? Like let the social media companies do what they want to do, but have a set of parameters and rules about what what they can promote? Or, I mean, how, how do we even get into that? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Talk about what is going on in Surrey. You've been hearing the story in the news that Surrey Council has gone ahead and voted in favor of this controversial bylaw that essentially would freeze complaints, new complaints and investigations by the ethics commissioner for months leading up to a municipal election. Now that seems awfully convenient, right? Politicians voting on that because obviously they don't want to get into any trouble or have anybody hear about any kind of trouble prior to a municipal election. There were so many concerns about this that the first time this bylaw was tabled earlier this year, they pulled it because there was such a controversy. But then they brought it back, and this time they went ahead and passed it. But again, not without controversy. In fact, BC's ombudsperson is even expressing disappointment with this. Let's find out why. Jay Chalk joins us now to talk about that. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Now, Jay, this is not something that happens very often. You don't usually have a letter that you send to council that is made public. Why did you decide to do this? Well, um, if we just wind the clock back a little bit, um, a few years ago, Surrey became the first city in BC to establish a, uh, the role of an ethics commissioner to investigate and uh, concerns that are raised by the public about um, an elected municipal official. And it's not mandatory for municipal councils to have an ethics commissioner uh, in British Columbia. So um, it was a credit to Surrey that they took that step. Uh, then a year ago, um, that uh, ethics commissioner, um, a lawyer named Reese Harding, tabled a report with council that recommended a number of improvements, um, uh, recommended that council make those uh, changes to their ethics bylaw. Uh, and one of um, and one of those was to introduce a short moratorium on processing new complaints for a roughly six week period, uh, running up to the general uh, municipal election. Um, fast forward to this month, uh, a year after uh, Mr. Harding um, uh, uh, tabled his report with council, um, they finally responded, and they brought in an amendment that. Um, uh, rejected his six-week proposal and instead substituted a, a, a moratorium of about six months that started the very next morning after uh, that bylaw was introduced. So that's what uh, uh, led me to uh, write to uh, the mayor and council. So what what are the concerns that you see here with putting this in place? Well, I think that um, uh, that uh, having uh, an election moratorium, it, there's uh, not it's not inappropriate uh, in and of itself. Uh, um, doing so would align uh, Surrey's code of conduct with many other similar, similar bylaws uh, across the country for major municipalities. But I was concerned that in the amendment bylaw, um, the proposed scope of complaints to be suspended was increased to cover all complaints rather than giving the ethics commissioner discretion, as he had recommended, uh, determine, to determine which complaints would be investigated. Uh, and uh, secondly, that the proposed moratorium period was so much longer uh, than he had recommended. So, you know, I thought his recommendations represented a you know, reasonable good faith effort to try to balance accountability with election integrity. I think that both are, both are important values. Uh, 
but uh, unfortunately, Council's rejection of those uh, recommendations in favour of a no-notice extended prohibition on receiving and investigating new ethics complaints, I think, is regrettable. So when you see that, okay, that passed last night then, what, what do you think that does to people's faith and how this process works? Well, ethics commissioners are new in British Columbia at the municipal level. And I think that uh, the public's confidence uh, is still developing. It's still fragile. And I think that it behooves councils that establish uh, these ethics commission's roles. Um, I think it's, it's a credit when they do, but it's still important that the actual legal structure in the bylaws be credible and promote values of accountability uh, and integrity and transparency. And um, I think that uh, uh, having a no-notice starting the very next morning uh, ban on, on uh, the ethics commissioner receiving uh, uh, any kind of uh, complaints is just not in that, uh, in that line. Did you get any response to your letter to Surrey Council? Uh, not to date. Um, um, I'm hoping that they do reply, although um, uh, I'm fully conscious that uh, last night they decided to adopt the bylaw. My letter was to urge them not to uh, adopt the bylaw, but uh, 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 but they went ahead and did. Um, um, but, uh, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint, uh, and uh, hopefully uh, uh, we'll see developments in the future. I'm also concerned, frankly, that... Uh, um, other municipalities in British Columbia um, uh, will look to um, uh, Surrey and Vancouver, who've gone first uh, for their models, and I am concerned about the precedent this is uh, setting, so um, I will be pursuing this with the Minister of Municipal Affairs at a provincial level to see, uh, going forward, um, uh, whether there are opportunities for the province to uh, ensure that municipalities um, uh, don't take steps like uh, Surrey's taken in this case. Do you feel that what's being done here is perhaps blunting the the effect or the purpose of having an ethics commissioner at the municipal level to begin with? I think that's right. I think that that uh, um, that one would hope that the intention uh, of having an, a moratorium um, uh, is so that. Uh, that spurious allegations that are made for political purposes in the immediate run-up to an election that can't possibly be investigated by the ethics commissioner before voting day, that those are set aside until after voting. Um, but when you have such a long period, um, you open yourself up to the criticism that the purpose is not that, but rather it's to preclude the ethics commissioner actually conducting an investigation and issuing a report that could be investigated by them uh, before voting day. And that's clearly not in anybody's interest. Right. So six weeks is reasonable. You feel six months is not. That's right. Is there, so what was done in Vancouver? You mentioned that Surrey and Vancouver have gone first. Do you have any concerns with the way Vancouver has shaped it? So Vancouver's um, uh, 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 moratorium is uh, basically starts on the last day of the nomination period, so roughly 36 days before uh, general voting day. Uh, and Surrey's uh, staff's report to council identified Vancouver, Calgary, Regina, Winnipeg, Toronto, you know, major municipalities in Canada, all of which have shorter uh, uh, pre-election moratoriums. They all do have ele- pre-election moratoriums, but they're all shorter than uh, that which Surrey adopted. Do you know any jurisdiction that has adopt- adopted a six-month moratorium like Surrey did? I have. I, I don't. I, I, I'll certainly say that we haven't done a comprehensive uh, review of, of all ethics uh, moratoriums around the world, but uh, uh, certainly uh, none that I'm aware of. 
So when you say you're going to take this up kind of at the provincial level, is there a way then to say, listen, I, I don't think this is being done in good faith here, that this may need, the legislation may need to be tweaked? Well, I think that that um, rather than commenting on the faith of Surrey Council, really, I, I think what we want to see is are these initial laws in British Columbia uh, uh, being, um, you know, useful precedents for everybody. And my concern is that this then becomes kind of the template um, for other municipalities uh, uh, who don't who don't yet have an ethics commissioner. The, uh, the legislature passed a, 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 a bill last fall that requires, um, will require after the upcoming uh, local general election, will require all municipalities to consider adopting a code of conduct uh, for their council. Uh, And one of the elements of that code of conduct, as has been done in both Surrey and Vancouver, is the ability to have some sort of ethics commission role. Uh, and so uh, each municipality will have to consider whether to do it. They don't have to actually adopt a standard of uh, a code of conduct, but they do have to actually have a, uh, a debate. And, and if they decline to establish a code of conduct, they have to issue reasons why they're declining to do so. Uh, and so we're going to see more of these sorts of codes of conduct uh, and potentially more ethics commissioners after the upcoming uh, municipal general election. Uh, and I don't want to see such a long moratorium become the template. So uh, I'll be uh, raising the issue um, uh, with the minister. Well, thank you for explaining it to us this morning. We appreciate that. Great. Thanks, Amy. Have a great day. You too. That's Jay Chalk, BC's ombudsperson, talking about concerns with what has been happening in Surrey. Surrey Council voting last night to adopt this long six-month period prior to a municipal election where all new ethics investigations and complaints cannot be investigated. And as you heard, that is much longer than what we have seen. Vancouver has 36 days approximately. Uh, It had been recommended by the ethics commissioner that six weeks would suffice, and they went ahead and did six months. Anyway, if you want to weigh in, simi at cknw. This is Mornings with Simi. May not feel like it, but warm weather is coming. And what that means for us in this province is that wildfire season will soon be upon us. So the BC government is doing some things to get ready for that. We thought, let's find out more. Joining us is Katrina Conroy, BC's Minister of Forests. Good morning. Good morning, Timmy. How are we preparing for this this year? Well, what we did is we are going to a year-round service model, which will en- enable the BC Wildfire Service to put more emphasis on all four pillars of emergency management, which is uh, prevention and mitigation, preparedness, and then response and recovery. I mean, we see our wildfire service out there doing that, that response, uh, but we need to make sure that we're doing all the other things needed to ensure we don't have the kind of fires that we have had in the last few years. Right. I know one of the things that was done is that like, you kind of keep the wildfire center open all year round now, too. Too, mm-hmm. Is that right? That's right. That's a, it'll be a year-round service. We'll be, you know, we've got these incredibly trained people, and and uh, they usually work from when fire season starts around now until when it finishes, and it's been getting later and later in the year, and then they're off. And why not put their their skills to use? And we heard that again and again when we were out in the field last year, visiting the wildfire centers, visiting the fire camps, talking to the firefighters. Like who best to do that work than the firefighters themselves? Okay, so where is some of this funding going to go then? What will it be used for? 
Well, $98 million um, will fund wildfire prevention work. So that means uh, going in and, and working with communities, working to, uh, you know, getting people trained to fight the fires, um, maintaining uh, road service so that we can get in, used to respond to fire, you know, the forest fires, the, the forest service roads. Um, we're going to be putting $90 million into uh, community grants for the Fire Smart program, which we saw again and again how where it really works well. You know, to it provides homeowners um, to think about their own surroundings and what they can do to mitigate fire, but also communities that can take action to ensure they're protecting their communities and homes from the impacts. I mean, I I had uh, I talked to people about it and, and did some looking around my own property and realized some mistakes I'd made and, and did some work last summer on it, and we're going to do more work again this summer. So, I mean, it, it, it's a good thing for people to think about. Yeah, I was wondering about that, the mitigation aspect of that. So are there certain zones that you think like more people should be thinking about this? If you live where, should you be thinking about this? Well, I think you should be thinking about it right across the province, especially the interior, the you know, the island. You know, there there was you know, fires popping up all over the place last year. And it's you know, with climate change, we need to make sure we're prepared for it. So I don't think it hurts for anybody to be prepared. I mean, there's lots of really good resources online through the Fire Smart program. There's you know, manuals showing what kind of uh, vegetation you should grow around your place that uh, actually can help to repel fires. You know, so you know, there's so much we can do and and. The firefighters are going to be there now, to, working with us, working with uh, with communities to help them with that. And and just the other thing to me is that you know the the what happened after the fires this year is the people that were trained that were working in the wildfire centers and the response centers they moved into working on on the floods on after the uh, the floods that we had last fall. I mean, so they were able to just transition into that work, which was you know it's emergency management work, it's it's priority and. and and they're they're trained, so it was it was they were able to do that work, which was incredible. Do we know? Are there any predictions? Like, what do we know about the type of summer we're going to have? We don't know what what's gonna it's gonna depend on is what our weather is like in in June. I mean, if we have a and you know a cool spring without too much heat and and a gradual melt, which will be great for flood control as well. And if we have some moisture in June, it helps to keep the forests, uh, you know, damp uh, prior to the, the summer hot season. And, and it depends what the season's going to be like as far as uh, as our weather. Are we going to have more heat domes? I mean, they keep telling us that it's, you know, one in so many years. But, uh, you know, is, is that something that we're dealing with now with climate change? So we need to be ready for it. I was wondering about that, too, is that, you know, BC's habit has always been that if we have a bad year, well, if the next year is not that bad, we, you know, push it to the back of our minds. How do we make sure we're we're looking after this even in years when wildfires are not terrible? Well, we need to always have it front of mind. And, and now with this funding, it's the first time that we've had such a large investment in the history of this organization in the province. And now we can keep it on people's mind 24-7, like all year round. And and I'm hearing from like mayors and communities who, who want the support. You know, some have had some pretty close calls. I mean, my own community that I live outside of, Castle Garg, I had a fire right outside just on the border of the community. And and everybody was very fortunate that, uh, you know, we managed to there's a People managed to, to not uh, lose anything, but uh, it was, you know, it was frightening for people and it gave people a heads up that we have to, I mean, we have beautiful forests in this province and, and they're amazing. They have to be properly managed. 
And sometimes, I mean, I know people have said, I have these beautiful trees in my yard. I don't want to cut down, but I have to cut a few of them down just to be safe, you know, and make sure that you're you're looking at uh, at the overall mitigation of, of what fires can do. And I think we just have to yeah. be prepared all, all year round. Now, while I have you, I also have to ask you, given that you are the Minister of Forests, like, what do you think of all these protests that we have been seeing in Metro Vancouver, people protesting the logging of old growth in our province? Yeah, I know. I, I, I recognize that there's a, there's a real diversity of perspectives on this this issue. And and some people, they, they'd like to see change overnight. And uh, I have to say, change is happening. I know, you know, and the work that's been happening um, in partnership with First Nations, I mean, we've implemented deferrals on nearly like 1.7 million hectares of old growth in this province, Simeon. Just to put that in perspective for your listeners, that's over 4,000 Stanley Parks. So it, it's significant, and and I you know I respect the right to, for people to peaceful protest, but I I don't think raising people's anger rather than raising awareness I, I don't think that's the way to go. I think you know, you know, <laughs> disrupting other people's lives it really does nothing to protect old growth. It it frustrates people, and I you know I, I just wish people would you know get on board, work with their communities, work with, with the nations, work with people that are you know, really want to see good, sustainable forestry practices in this province. And as I said, we have, you know, we've made sure, like, there's in total, there's over 80% of the most at-risk old growth in, in BC that was identified last year by the old growth technical panel that we had of, of uh, experienced scientists who, you know, th- that's 80% is not currently threatened by by harvesting, and, and it's already protected, it's covered by deferrals. And, and I think we need to recognize that, you know, like there has been so much work done on this. And, and again, I recognize the, you know, the right to peaceful protest, but sometimes that if you, you're just raising anger, you're not going to raise awareness. Listen, thank you for your time on that this morning. Okay. Thanks. Amy. Appreciate that. It's Karina Conroy, who's the minister of forests here in BC talking about wildfire prevention coming up this summer. We certainly hope we don't see anything this summer, like what we saw last summer and also talking about the old growth protests that we have seen happen in Metro Vancouver. This is Mornings with Simi. Boy, I don't think it takes much to get people going when you say, ask them, you know, hey, remember what it was like last summer during the heat dome? Everybody has a story to tell. And of course, many of them were tragic in dealing with how incredibly hot it was. Between June 25th and July 1st of last year, that's when we had the heat dome, that high pressure weather system that traps heat with record high temperatures reaching up to 49.6 degrees Celsius. Now, they tell us that that could happen again. So are we getting ready for that? Our contributor, Raji Sohal, joins us now for more on that. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, when I think about how hot it was last summer for that spell, I just remember that at certain times it was so hot that I literally couldn't think about anything else besides the fact that it was so hot. Like I just sat there and said to myself, it's hot. It's yeah. hot. <laughs> you know what? You're so right about that because it was so hot. I was one of the many people who just caved and went and stayed at a hotel for one night. That's all I could get because oh, the places were all booked up. That's great. And after an hour of sitting in that room with just the air conditioning on, I felt myself returning more to normal, that my brain wasn't as cloudy and fogged up and that you thought, oh my goodness. And that's when I really realized how much of an impact heat has on your body and your brain. 
Oh, for sure. My kids were two and four at the time. And just to keep them comfortable at night, you know what I did? I had them sleep in wet sheets, damp sheets. Nice. And in the middle of the night, I'd go in there and check on them. The sheets would be totally dry. And so I kept a misting bottle to spray them and their sheets down a few times in the night. It's not like I had to set an alarm to wake up because I couldn't sleep myself because it was so hot. And we don't have AC, but it got me wondering how many folks in BC did get AC? So I called a bunch of HVAC companies uh, here in the lower mainland. and, And the consensus is that last year's heat wave made business just boom for them. And at the time, they were not prepared for it, but they're trying to get prepared now. Here's Roy De Silva from Pro Ace Heating and Air Conditioning. We've seen in the recent years an upward trend uh, towards more people getting uh, air conditioning. What used to be maybe five or six years ago, more of a luxury product is now becoming something that is mandatory in people's homes. Uh, when the heat wave came last year, obviously, uh, we saw a huge uptake in requests that pretty much extended throughout the fall and into the winter, catching up with our orders that we had uh, accumulated during the summertime. Going forward, uh, everyone that's building new uh, homes or, or uh, condos are also including AC2 as well. Um, we are seeing an uptake in that. I just think overall, AC, AC is definitely on the top of people's minds and something that they are wanting to get done and needing to get done. So, why would you say that? Is there a backlog of people? Do they have a waiting list? Yeah, everyone I talk to has a backlog right now. So if you don't have AC installed, but you do want to get it installed, really, this is the time to put the research in, find out which company you want to go with uh, to budget for it because it's expensive. And to get it installed, you do not want to wait until July because I don't know that you will be able to find service. And HVAC companies have been uh, preparing. But last year, actually, Simi, there were basic supply issues too when the boom happened because no one was prepared for it. And uh, some people, I would say, though, they still don't want to get AC, that they think that they can uh, mitigate through other ways. And and in all fairness, that heat dome, as intense as it was, um, it was two weeks, right? Around two weeks where it was just unbearable. It was awful. Um, yeah. Yeah. And people mitigated by, you know, keeping the windows open at night and then closing them before sunrise, covering the windows and skylights and that kind of thing. Um, But uh, some people, uh, some critics actually say that given the number of people who lost their lives during the heat dome and looking at how much heat it affects and impacts uh, older adults, that maybe AC units should even be considered medical devices. Interesting. Medical, because there's certainly a very good argument to be made that for a lot of people, it was just bad for their health when you consider how many people we lost during the heat dome. Yeah, for sure. I think that the province, uh, well, we've been hearing the province is doing more to uh, help older adults uh, during the heat wave this time. If we have one, of course, it's not totally predictable. Um, and and certainly we didn't do enough, right? When we look back at the tragedy of last summer. Um, and so hopefully something more can be done for older adults. You know, myself in my home, there's no plan to get AC, uh, but we didn't prune uh, the trees and the rhododendrons, which grew a ton, and they now shade the exterior. So there's uh, 
there's a little, it's a little bit of a consolation prize for us for not getting AC is that we have this new shade. Um, and, you know, skylights, windows, that kind of thing, just paying more attention to how we can cover them when the time comes and we have to brace ourselves for that heat. Do you think, though, that people will forget? For instance, if we don't have that intense heat this summer, do you think it will slip from people's minds? Uh, I get the sense that you think it will. I don't think it <laughs> I will. Think that, uh, I think that about human psychology for everything, right? Is yeah. that if it's not top of mind <laughs> and if we can go a year or two without it, that people will just move on and forget about it. I think the tragedy of having lost so many lives last summer uh, kicked a lot of people into action. And so I think a lot of folks did get AC and a lot of people started to think about their neighbors and to think about what they might do to help them uh, to come up with a plan in advance for the older adults in their lives. So I like to think the opposite, Simi, that people are now paying attention during spring that when we need to be thinking about what we will do for the summer ahead. Well, we'll see. I know you're a glass half full person. I love that about you. <laughs> but we'll see if people, if that's still top of mind for people. Thank you for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi. It's our Raji Sohal there. So let's find out. Are you one of those people? Have you decided, you know what? Not again. Never again am I going through that. Did you make any kind of changes as a result of, you know, suffering through that heat dome last year in preparation of having that happen potentially again. Simi at cknw.com if you'd like to weigh in. Don't forget, you can also call our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. Ever since we had that fire and now the demolition of the Winters Hotel in Gastown, there has been a question, and that is, could this happen again? We know there are many other SROs in the city, and Vancouver's Fire Department says that it responded to more than 300 situations at those SROs last year. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Jen St. Dennis, who's a downtown Eastside reporter with the TIE, and she's written a new piece all about this. Jen, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me, Simi. So you really dug up some interesting information here. What do we know about the situation at the Winters Hotel? Like, were there operating sprinklers? What was going on? Yeah, so what had happened at the Winters is that there had been a previous fire on April 8th, three days before the fire, and that was on a Friday. Um, and after that happens, after sprinklers go off, um, they have to be serviced by a fire suppression system company. They have to come and kind of reset everything and make sure everything's working. And so what we know is that um, it, it took a few days, I guess, for that to happen. Um, and there was a fire watch set. Uh, the fire department orders just sort of like people patrolling around visually looking for, for fire. Um, and that was happening in the building. But um, apparently when the fire happened, so the sprinkler obviously didn't go off. And the building alarm apparently also did not go off, according to the fire department. But the fire was noticed by someone doing one of those fire watch patrols. Okay, now is that something that happens in other SRO buildings? Are they on the lookout for fires? Yeah, it does happen. So um, SROs are these you know, old hotels in the city, um, often housing very marginalized population of people. Um, and they are at really, really high risk of fire be- for a number of reasons, because of the building's age, um, and then also because of the, um, you know, the vulnerabilities of the people who live there. So we know that the fire at the Winters was caused by um, someone using a candle, according to the fire department. 
apparently um, that's common because of drug use. Um, there's also people with severe mental illness. And I heard about situations where people, because of the symptoms of their mental illness, they're maybe constantly sort of tampering with the fire suppression systems. And uh, one housing provider, PHS, told me that they try to move people like that out of, out of the older SROs into newer buildings where they can't do as much damage. Right. But it sounds like the people who run these buildings, though, that they have something in place to monitor for these situations. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I think it's a constant, they constantly have to be on the lookout. Um, so I talked to another um, housing provider, PHS, about what they do, and Rain City as well, who operates some SROs as well. Um, they don't operate the winters, that's operated by a chair of property management. But I talked to PHS and Rain City about how, you know, they said that they're constantly on the lookout for um, things like, you know, smoke detectors being disconnected, because maybe sometimes people want to smoke in their room, or doors not being closed on rooms, which is a big fire hazard. Um, but, you know, in the, in the summer, it gets really hot, so people want to have their doors open. Um, things like exits being cluttered and maybe not, not people not being able to get out. So, yeah, they have to be constantly on the lookout for these things. And the fire department is, too. They actually have a two-person team that works inside these buildings, um, and they're, they're really dedicated to that. That's all that they do. Right, and you also asked about what was specifically going on in terms of those kinds of checks at the Winters building, didn't you? Mm-hmm. I did. I didn't get a response back from material property management to my questions. Um, and I'm looking for more information, too, to throw the details of the fire watch, um, because PHS told me that when they have to do a fire watch in their building, you know, if, if the sprinkler alarm goes off and they're in the same situation that the Winters was in, they do, they do a patrol every 15 minutes, which is quite frequent. Um, but I haven't got that information back from Atira yet. Okay, so that when you take all that into account then, Jen, with all the SROs that we have in the city, do you think there are some other risky buildings? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, like, frankly, all of these buildings are at risk of fire. Um, so I do, I, you know, I have heard of some situations. One of the situations that I'm most concerned about is, it wasn't until I talked to the chief building official that I realized how important it was for people to have their doors closed. Um, and so one of the situations I had heard about while I was reporting on some of the Atira property management um, operated SROs is some tenants actually living for quite a long time, for several weeks, without any doors on their on their rooms at all. So that actually, I didn't realize until I talked to the chief building official that that was a huge fire risk and he was quite shocked when I told him. So... I would hope that, you know, the fire department and the city are maybe looking into that. And hopefully that's not happening, happening anywhere else in the city. Well, that's what I'm wondering, too, is that with everything that's come out after this fire, has anything changed from what you've heard about how these things are looked at, how how they go about doing all this at these buildings? I don't know if anything has changed right now. Um, you know, I would hope that there would be a big review of practices by all of the parties involved. So that would be BC Housing, who funds a lot of these buildings and owns some of them. You know, all of the supportive housing providers, uh, the city, the building inspectors, and the fire department. I would hope that there would be some sort of review of what is going on and maybe what needs to change after after this tragedy. It's, it's a scary thing, though, isn't it, to think that this they had a sprinkler system. They had a sprinkler system that worked. It just wasn't turned on. It's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And as we knew, like, you know, initially we thought that everyone had made it out. And then um, just last Friday, just, just horribly and shockingly, um, 
we realized, you know, not everyone had made it out and there were two people found, two bodies found in, in the rubble. Jen, what are the questions that you still have here? What are you still going to look into? Well, I would really just like to know the details of the fire watch that was in place. Um, you know, I've been told by some other advocates that, um, you know, having a really detailed fire watch might have meant that extra staff should have been hired. So I'd just like to get the details of what exactly, um, whether, and also the sprinkler was turned off and everybody knew that. So I also am curious whether the tenants were told about that, whether they were told, you know, okay, we had this fire on Friday, um, the sprinkler is off. So everybody has to be really careful. Um, maybe even, I don't know, our tenants, are they doing a fire drill regularly? Are tenants aware of all of the safety concerns around fire? Um, those, are the, those are some of the questions I have. Right. Those seem pretty basic. Like, well, essentially, what was the protocol here for dealing with yeah. what it sounds like was a regular situation? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, we look forward to reading more about that. Jen, thanks for your time. Thank you, Simi. That's Jen St. Dennis, who is a downtown Eastside Beat reporter with the TIE. Now, her latest piece in TIE.ca asked the question, which I think lots of people have wondered about, and that is, the fire that we had at the Winters Hotel, could we see that in other buildings, given what we know about how this one started? And certainly from the assessment that we've heard is that unless a building has one of these very robust fire watch programs, that that is definitely a risk of having that happen. So there's still more questions about that especially now that we know that two people died in that fire. So still lots of information that needs to come out on that.